0: Saul's madness is finally catching up to him, fearful of what he might do in that state of mind. His servants call upon David to counteract his bouts of torment. This is the 33rd sermon in the series Dynasty, Lordship, and Authority, an exposition on the first book of Samuel. Our Old Covenant reading coming from Samuel and chapter 16. Samuel and chapter 16, beginning in verse 13 through the end of the chapter, verse 23. 1 Samuel 1613 through 23 Beloved of the Lord, this is the word of God unto us this morning. By inspiration of God, the prophet says this, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brethren. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. But the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. And Saul's servants said unto him, Behold, now an evil spirit from God troubleth him. Let our Lord now command thy servants, which are before thee, to seek out a man who is a cunning player on an harp. And it shall come to pass, when the evil spirit from God is upon him, that he shall play with his hand, and thou shalt be well. And Saul said unto his servants, Provide me now a man that can play well and bring him to me. Then answered one of the servants and said, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, that is cunning and playing, and a mighty valiant man, and a man of war, and prudent in matters, and a comely person, and the Lord is with him. Wherefore Saul sent messengers unto Jesse, and said, Send me David thy son, which is with the sheep. And Jesse took an ass laden with bread, and a bottle of wine, and a kid, and sent them by David his son unto Saul. Saul. And David came to Saul and stood before him, and he loved him greatly, and he became his armor-bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David, I pray thee, stand before me, for he hath found favor in my sight. And it came to pass, when the evil spirit from God was upon Saul, that David took an harp and played with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the evil spirit departed from him. Paul writing to the church at Rome in the book of Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 12, Romans six twelve through 16 By the same spirit, the apostle counsels the church at Rome, saying this by inspiration of God, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God. As those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin, because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death? or of obedience unto righteousness. Thus far as the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word, the grass withers. The flower there fades away, but the word of God stands forever, and by his holy word are we warned, and are we taught by him this day. Now having been introduced to David, his fidelity, bravery, and love for God, we are now faced with the juxtaposition between David and Saul. In other words, God is purposely contrasting these two men in an effort to make several points. And these points include the historical, the practical, and the eschatological importance. And so, what we will discover in this account, and in all other writings of Scripture, is how it relates to the historical account of Israel, what lessons of practice and practicality are there for us to understand, and for every generation to be taught in. And finally, we are taught how Christ is portrayed in these events, which is what we call the eschatological import of the historical writing. So first, let's look at the historical account of David and Saul in chapter 16. In verse 13 of chapter 16, David is anointed by Samuel As the true king, the future true king of Israel. And he is given, very clearly, he is given the spirit of God. And this is a historical fact. Now, Peter makes mention of David as a historical figure. So we have no illusion that this was a real man. He's not some narrative that someone made up. He's not a mythical figure. He's not a legend. He's a real man. He's a historical figure and Peter makes mention of him in Acts chapter 2 during his Pentecostal speech. Notice what he says in Acts chapter 2 verse 34. For David is not ascended into the heavens but he saith himself the Lord said unto my Lord sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye crucified both Lord and Christ. So Peter is pointing to a real man in a real time in history and the man's name is David. Now, by giving David the Spirit of God, this implies that God has given David his effectious power, his efficacious power, which came upon him by the Spirit giving, which gives him the legal legitimacy. And this is what God is doing here. He's giving David Legal legitimacy as the future king, even though he is not declared publicly as king. But he is no less the legitimate king. David is not simply made another man, but rather he is made a renewed man. Unlike Saul, as you remember, who is given another heart, David is given a new heart. Now this is not to say that at this time of the anointing, David becomes a regenerate man. That's not what this is teaching it is most likely that David was a regenerate man, even from his mother's womb, because as he declares in Psalm 22, I was cast upon thee from the womb. Thou art my God from my mother's belly. Verse 10 of Psalm 22. David's anointing at this point in history by Samuel simply indicates this this shift, this legal shift, this covenantal shift. From the shepherd boy to the future king of Israel. This anointing testifies of a legitimate transformation of authority. Not so much that he's now being regenerated, but it's a transformation of authority from Samuel to David and from Saul to David. No longer will Saul be looked at as king. Now David will be looked at as the king, even though he's not publicly declared as such. Secondly, over against That is the departure of the Spirit of God from Saul. David is given the Spirit of God, Saul is now devoid of the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is taken away from Saul. Historically, Saul is no longer the legitimate king, even though he is not yet removed as king. Nevertheless, he remains a figurehead until the appointed time when David is revealed and sadly, unfortunately, Righteously, Saul is killed. Thirdly, having been administratively removed from office, Saul's troubles, as we shall see, are just beginning. Verse 14 tells us that as a result of Saul's defrocking, and as the result of the Spirit of God being removed from Saul, he is now plagued by what the Scriptures call an evil spirit. Notice verse 14. But the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and immediately we can see that an evil spirit from the Lord, this is a part of the judgment of God upon Saul, troubles him. Adam Clark comments, he says, Saul was thrown into such a state of mind by the judgments of God as to be deprived of any regal qualities which he before possessed. God seems to have taken what gifts he had and given them to David, and then the evil spirit came upon Saul. Now, whether this was a diabolical possession or a mere mental malady, the learned are not agreed. It seems to have been a partaker of both. The phrase evil spirit in the Hebrew here can also be rendered a wretchedness of mind, a wretchedness of of a man's rationality. In other words, at this point, Saul is losing all reason. He's no longer thinking rationally. He's out of his mind. Knowing the mind of the power monger Saul, it seems likely that once he had God's Spirit taken from him, he succumbed to his own evil heart. It was always in Saul's heart to be an evil man. So it was always this this tendency by unregenerate man to succumb to his own evil intentions when the restraining hand of God is taken. And this is defined in this way as an evil spirit from the Lord. And I say this because men are often called spirits in Hebrews chapter 12. So Saul, I believe, is just given over to his own depravity. And so men are even the spirits of just men, as David is made perfect by the Spirit of God, or they are unjust men, who have not the Spirit of God, but succumb to their own evil ways, their own evil spirit, because they are spiritual men. No matter what the organic cause of the malady, no matter what the organic cause of of this evil spirit, troubling Saul, we can know for a fact that Saul was in a very bad way. And at this point, it would metastasize into murderous actions, which is the token of natural man, because natural man is a murderer. All God had to do was remove his restraining hand from Saul, and Saul's going to do what nature would dictate because he was a murderous man by nature. For in the heart of natural man, without the Spirit of God, man has murderous intentions. And Jesus confirms this. In Matthew chapter 15 and in Mark 7, we read this in verse 19 and 21 respectively For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. For from within, out of the heart of man, proceedeth evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, and murders. Highlighting murders. So all God needs to do is to remove his restraining hand from man, and man will go headlong into murderous action. Paul adds to the list. Notice what he says in Galatians 5.21. Adding to the list, he says, not only evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, and murders. He says, envyings, and then he adds murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Saul was headed for hell. Next, we have the practical, or the lessons which we learn from this historical narrative. Firstly, Saul was a tyrant. Tyrants cannot remain in power forever. Since the Lord will eventually deliver his people from the tyranny of men, the tyrant's time and power, and this is important for us to understand in our darkened day, the tyrant's time and power is limited in its duration, intensity, and scope. The tyrant can only go so far as God will allow, and no further, He determines the bounds of the tyranny, the duration of the tyranny, the intensity of the tyranny, the scope of the tyranny. David learned this very early on when he wrote in Psalm 37, Fret not thyself because of evildoers, neither be thou envious against the workers of iniquity, for they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. For evildoers shall be cut off, but those that wait upon the Lord they shall inherit the earth. For yet a little while, and the wicked shall not be. Yea, thou shalt diligently consider his place, and it shall not be. But the meek shall inherit the earth, and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. Verse 14, verse 35, and verse 38 of Psalm 37. The wicked have drawn out the sword. And have bent their bow, to cast down the poor and needy, and to slay such as be of upright conversation. Their sword shall enter into their own heart, and their bow shall be broken. I have seen the wicked in great power, and spreading himself like a green bay tree. Yet he passed away, and lo, he was not. Yea, I sought him, but he could not be found. But the transgressors shall be destroyed together. The end of the wicked shall be cut off. So tyrants cannot remain in power forever. They have a limitation to their power. Number two, tyrants can only do what the Lord allows them to do. They can only do what God allows them to do. When Pilate stated, that he had power, and I love that line, I have power to do this thing or the other thing, or the clergy says this, or the magistrate says that, or the president says this, I can do this, or I have power to do this. When Pilate stated that he had power over the Lord Jesus Christ to crucify him or to let him go, Jesus quickly reminded him that he actually had no power. John 19, 10 and 11. Then saith Pilate unto him, Speakest thou not unto me? Knowest thou not that I have power to crucify thee and have power to release thee? A presumptuous man. A man that thought because of his own mind he could exercise some sort of power. Notice what Jesus says. Jesus answered, Thou couldest have no power at all. Notice, I love the at all. Thou cannot have any power whatsoever against me, except it were given thee from above. You can only go so far as God will allow. David too understood that tyrants have no power but what the Lord gives them. They can go just so far, and no farther according to the word of God. Notice, Proverbs 21, 1. Learning from his father David, Solomon says this, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord as the rivers of water, and he turns it whithersoever he will. So tyrants can go just so far and no farther according to God's will and his covenant word. Speaking both physically and metaphorically, Jeremiah explains that even the sea has limitations. And here the sea also metaphorically refers to the realm of the human race, known as Jeremiah 5.22. Fear ye not me, saith the Lord? Will ye not tremble at my presence, which have placed the sand for the bound of the sea by a perpetual decree that it cannot pass it? And though the waves thereof toss themselves, notice he's really speaking of the wicked, though the waves thereof toss themselves, yet can they not prevail, though they roar, yet can they not pass over it. He's really speaking of the wicked. Thirdly, Tyrants are not to be feared. I'm going to say that again. Tyrants are not to be feared. We are not to be afraid of the tyrant. Matthew 10, 28, Deuteronomy 20, verse 1. Jesus speaking. And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear Him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And then Moses says this, Deuteronomy 20. When thou wast go out to battle against thine enemies, and seest horses and chariots and a people more than thou, be not afraid of them. For the Lord thy God is with thee. That should be enough. That the Lord thy God is with thee, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. Let me put it another way. Don't be afraid because the Lord is with thee that saved your soul from hell and took you out of the bondage of your own flesh, Egypt. David, he was a man who comforted himself in the face of fear, knowing, conscious of the fact that God was with him. Notice what he says, Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. He's consciously making a decision that he is not going to be afraid. I will fear no evil. But then he tells us why. Why? For thou art with me. He knew that God was with him. He meditated upon God. He prayed to God. He read God's word. He studied God's word. He was careful about his life, his life walk with God. And he knew God had blessed him. He had an intimate association with God. Now, if you don't have an association with God, if you are not intimately relating to God, in your daily life, if you don't have a a life purpose that revolves around God, then you cannot know these things. You cannot say with David, for thou art with me. Because you really don't know. But David could say this. This is what we need to be able to say. I will fear no evil, no calamity, not what man can do to me, Because thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, the word of God, the promises of God, they are my comforters. Number four. All unrepentant tyrants are going to hell. All unrepentant tyrants are going to hell. And I say this without prejudice or malice, but as a matter of fact. Jesus declared this. Luke 13.5 I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. All unrepentant tyrants are going to hell. Solomon gives this frightening declaration. He says this in Proverbs 16.4 The Lord hath made all things for himself, yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. David too, no stranger to the end of the wicked. He says this in Psalm 9.17 The wicked shall be turned into hell. And all the nations, notice how he extrapolates this out, even the nations that forget God. Number five, tyrants who are unwilling to repent and humble themselves before the throne of God must be condemned before the throne of God by imprecatory prayers. The pulpit must take the tyrant to account. Without prejudice, without malice, but as a matter of fact, the Christian church must be well-equipped to first identify the unrepentant tyrant and then pray against him or her. If the tyrant refuses to heed the counsel of Scripture or defy the sovereignty of the Lord by his actions or her actions, then they are to be condemned from the pulpit publicly in a public declaration before the congregation of Jesus Christ, if not before the whole council of the wicked tyrants. Now this is to be done, as I've just said, set forth from three distinct vantage points. In private, you are to pray imprecatory prayers in your secret closet. When you pray, pray against the tyrant. Identify that tyrant first, and then begin praying against that tyrant. Secondly, in public prayer from the pulpit. The pulpits need to resound this imprecatory condemnation against the tyrant. That is what the pulpits are for. To call men out for their sins, to warn them and teach them what they must do as magistrates or as clergymen. So in private and in public. Thirdly, in a public declaration within the realm of the tyrant, in the newspaper, at the council meetings, before Congress, in the White House, wherever the tyrant resides, that is where public declaration needs to be spent. Now, Speaking of the wicked, David, again, gives us this example. Psalm 55:15. Notice what he says. And he makes no apology. I am sick and fed up and tired of people saying, well, you know, we can't really know their heart. But we can know what they're doing. We can know their fruit. We can know their heart. Because out of the mouth of man exposes what is in the heart and they are murderers. So I make no apology. Notice what David says, making no apology. He says, let death seize upon them. And let them go down quick into hell. No waiting, no pass go, no collect $200. Now, right into hell. This is a man of faith. This is a man of courage. This is a man who knew the difference between good and evil, right and wrong. And he knew what was in the heart of man. And he had no problem without fear, without compromise, and no problem saying, let death seize upon them and let them go down quick into hell for wickedness is in their dwelling and among them. Why stand we idle? We must take the battle to the enemy. In 1653, Covenantal James Guthrie published his famous work called Causes of the Lord's Wrath Against Scotland Manifested in His Latest dispensations. They used to have very long titles. And that title would show you exactly what they were about to say. So let me read it again Causes of the Lord's wrath against Scotland manifested in his latest dispensations. In it, he details the many offenses that both the people and the ministers have perpetrated and promoted against God mincing no words, a published document. And what is so obvious in his treatise is that his condemnation does not deal with the civil realm of the government directly, but rather places all the blame of the state of affairs in Scotland on the back of the church and its clergymen. Some of his concerns are as follows. The gross atheism and ignorance of God, his word and works by both the people and the clergy. Horrible looseness and profanity of conversation of all sorts against the commandments both of the first and second tables. The lack of exercise of godliness in families. Notice the lack of exercise. Doing it, doing it, doing it in your family. Not just leaving it up to whimsical whenever you feel like it. The base love of the world and covetousness, which hath made not only the body of the people, but many ministers more to mind their own things than the things of Jesus Christ the corruption of the Ecclesiastic General Assembly, in the admitting of persons not rightly qualified for the work of the ministry, the eldership in congregations, and the continuing of such in these places. You want to be a pastor? Yeah, come on aboard. Yeah, come on. We're not going to vet you really well. Just come on in. We need everybody we can get. In the admitting of persons not rightly qualified for the work of the ministry. And what rightly qualifies a man for the work of the ministry? Passion. A walk of faith, courage, stick to continuity. A family that walks in the fear of the Lord. He continues, in the resting in the bare forms of religious observances. While the Declaration of Guthrie targeted the root problem of the civil realm, placing it at the door of the church, years later, the Cameroon brothers took an aim directly at the king himself. And in their Sanguahara Public Declaration, which was a city, or small, actually it was a small town, speaking against the king, King Charles II, here's what they said, publicly, in the public square. So think about this. You go to Cortland Field over there, and you get a bunch of people that are just walking around, just doing their thing, and you call everybody together, and you say this. Speaking of the magistrates, the Congress, the clergymen, the presidents, whoever, you say this. And this was about King Charles. He had so far debased from what he ought to have been by his perjury and usurpation in church matters and tyranny in matters civil, as is known by the whole land, that we have just reason to account it one of the Lord's great controversies against us that we have not disowned him and the men of his practices. Whether inferior magistrates or any other, as enemies to our Lord and His crown and the true Protestant Presbyterian interest in this land and our Lord's espoused bride and church. Notice what they're saying. I mean, these were men of courage. These were men who did not fear for their lives. These were men of old. These should be the men whose shoulders we stand upon. Notice what they're saying. They are publicly confessing that they are in this predicament of tyranny as a result of not publicly calling out the tyrants sooner. They continue. Therefore, though we be for government and governors, such as the word of God and our covenant allow, yet we, for ourselves, and all that we adhere to, "...as the representatives of the true Presbyterian Church and covenanted nation of Scotland, considering the great hazard of lying under such a sin any longer..." do by these presents disown Charles Stuart that has been reigning, or rather, tyrannizing, as we may say, on the throne of Britain these years bygone, as having any right, title to, or interest in, the said crown of Scotland for government, as forfeited several years hence by his perjury and breach of covenant both to God and his church, and usurpation of his crown and royal prerogatives therein, and many other breaches, in matters ecclesiastic, and by his tyranny and breach, in matters civil, for which reason we declare that several years since he should have been denounced of being king, ruler, or magistrate, or of having any power to act or to be obeyed as such. As also we, being under the standard of the Lord Jesus Christ, captain of salvation, do declare a war with such a tyrant and usurper and all the men of his practices as enemies to our Lord Jesus Christ and his cause and covenant, and against all such as have strengthened him, sided with, or anywise acknowledged any other in like usurpation and tyranny. Now today we would have someone read this and they wouldn't understand what is being said here. Because men don't speak like this anymore because they have no faith. They have no more courage. Notice, they're saying, we will no longer listen to you, we will have now disavow value. You have been so tyrannically wicked, we should have been denouncing you years ago as king, as ruler and magistrate. And we should have denounced any power that you have to act and we should not obey you in any matters which are antagonistic against the crown rights of King Christ. Now, you say that in the church today and you'll be empty the next Sunday. So what the church must do without failure, even though it may already be too late, and here's the tactic, I give you in your hearing this day the strategy and the tactic of what you must do Monday morning without fail, even though it may be already too late, is revive this declaration and publicly without fear of reprisal call out the tyrants who have set themselves against the Lord and against His Christ as well as the church. This is done in a variety of ways. Tracks, letters, podcasts, person to person, radio call in, interviews, whatever you can figure out. Saul was a usurper, but it was too late for the people to do anything about it since he had gained so much power. What they failed to do at this point was to call him out for his treachery. But they were too afraid. They, they didn't want to make him angry because they were afraid of the man. And because they were so afraid, that emboldened Saul to become more tyrannical. When we hide, when we say that we're afraid, when we be look in behind us, instead of recognizing that the Lord has our back, then, then we cannot call out the tyrant. And then the tyrant becomes more tyrannical, he gains more power, more, more prestige... He becomes more wicked, and then it's too late. But happily, now God steps in. He steps in through Samuel and David. And they are going to make it right. Because they are men of courage. Now there is, thirdly, however, also an eschatological aspect to the story of David and Saul. If David is a type of Christ who is both the legitimate king of Israel and the second Adam, then it follows that Saul portrays Adam, and we've discussed this before, the first and the fallen illegitimate king of Israel, the fallen illegitimate king of the world. And I find it very interesting that Adam was the first and David was the eighth. And the number eight is significant in Scripture. It is the day of the Lord's day, the eighth day of the week, the Sunday which is also the first day of the week, but it's also eight in the ark, eight days circumcision, eighth son of Jesse, very significant, pointing forward, pointing forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when Adam sinned, he effectively murdered the entire human race. In Adam, the entire human race died. More horrific than that, if there can be anything more horrific than that, is that within his genetical makeup as the scripture says, within his loins, Adam also housed the elect of God. And so, in effect, not only did Adam, by his willful rebellion, kill off the reprobate of the world, he murdered the elect of God, which prompted the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Therefore, like Saul, as we shall see, Adam murdered the priests of God, even as Saul is, as we shall see, murdering the priests of God. When Jesus made reference to the devil as a murderer, in John chapter 8, in the father of the Pharisees, I believe he was referring to Adam himself and the natural fallen tendency of man to twist the truth, kill and lie. Notice what he says in verse 44. Ye, to the Pharisees, he says, ye are of your father the devil and the lusts of your father ye will do. What did they want? They wanted to be as God. What did Adam want? He wanted to be as God. He was a murderer from the beginning. Adam murdered the entire human race from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own for he is a liar and the father of it. Man is spoken of countless times as having no truth in him, filled with darkness, lying, murdering, deceiving and slandering. And this is the nature of man. This is the nature of the old Adam, and this was Saul. That's what his nature was. And once God removed his hand of restraint from Saul, Saul went mad. And it was at this time that the Spirit of God departed from him, making him entirely subject to his own depraved heart. Everything from this time forward that he does, from this point on, is devilish and therefore slanders against the Lord and against his anointed. And this is who he's hunting for. He's hunting for David. He's hunting for the type of Christ. He's hunting for God's anointed. Notice verse 14. But the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. Consider the counsel of Saul's servants. And Saul's servants said unto him, Behold now an evil spirit from God troubleth thee. So it was obvious It wasn't just something that was going on in his mind. It was very much obvious. Let our Lord now command thy servants, which are before thee, to seek out a man who is a cunning player on an harp. I find that interesting that they're asking Saul if it's okay to get someone to help you. That's how afraid they were of Saul. They didn't just go out and get somebody because they thought that maybe if we get someone, he won't be angry and he'll kill us. So maybe we'll just ask him first. And that's the problem. They were afraid of Saul. Let our Lord now command thy servants which are before thee to seek out a man who is a cunning player on an harp and it shall come to pass when the evil spirit from God is upon thee that he shall play with his hand and thou shalt be well. Now there are a number of things to be pointed out here. Saul's demeanor was obvious. His troubles were evident to all who knew him. He was losing his mind and the people knew it. And this is true with all kinds of mental or spiritual disorders. It is written on their faces, evident in their speech and displayed in their actions. Saul's servants knew something was very wrong. He wasn't the man he was, or at least what he seemed to be. Now he was something different. And this is what happens to those who have not the spirit of Christ. You can tell. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to tell, if you are a Christian, who is and who is not. Christians who have the Spirit of God, sometimes, of course, they will sometimes go through bouts of difficulty, and it can be seen on their faces, but they regroup. Eventually, they regroup. By the grace of God, they regroup. They, They get hold of themselves, and they compose themselves in faith to their Lord and their Savior, and they become healed. But not so with Saul. Saul could not get himself back. He could not do this because the Lord had entirely departed from him, leaving him to wrestle with his own demons. He needed an outside helper. He needed David, the sweet psalmist. Secondly, even though the situation was dire, Saul's servants still asked permission to find someone to help. And of course, as we said, this was fearful. They were fearful. And that tells me something about Saul at this point. He was unpredictable. He was unstable as water. He was toxic and dangerous. And his servants were so afraid to do anything without his okay that they asked him. Because if they didn't and he did not approve, maybe he would turn and kill them. So his actions could no longer be trusted. And you cannot trust a man who is unstable in his spiritual life. Saul became a loose cannon and there was no telling what he would do if he was To be treated with anything, he was to be treated with cunningness and gentleness, as his servants decided. And this is um, to be found later on, of course, when we see Saul lashing out at David in a barrage of murderous hatred. David was just trying to help him. And so the servants asked permission to find a man to help Saul. Thirdly, the remedy was very particular. It was music. Saul's hope rested in a man that could skillfully play on a harp. And it's interesting to note that they do not ask for a priest or a prophet, nor do they inquire of Samuel. They ask for a man who could play on a harp. And they certainly did not consider praying, of course. They're not going to pray. They they were so beside themselves, they were not calling upon the Lord. They asked for a man to play on a harp. It's also very interesting that they did not seek the aid of any of the king's physicians. Rather, they looked to a man that can play on a harp. Number four, we see God at work providentially. We see God here at work providentially. First, he moves David, while he was in the sheepfold, while he was watching the sheep, to take up this instrument, the harp, and to perfect his skill to the point where he is well known for his skill where he can play on the harp. Let me put it in this way. You should be known for your skill in delivering the Word of God, which is the song of salvation. David was a skillful man of God. God puts this in the minds of Saul's servants to seek out this man who they knew. Everybody knew him. I know someone who can play skillfully. David was not hiding his skill. He had it out there and he wasn't afraid to play on his harp. Finally, these servants were, were very bold and promising. This was, a, this, this was something they took, they took a gamble on. They were very bold in promising that the music would soothe Saul's trouble. If they perceive that Saul's issuers of the mind a psychological madness as we have supposed, then music would take his mind from his troubles and his terrors and redirect it where Saul would be comforted and think about how music is working today when we when we have music before us it, it redirects us it either comforts us, it makes us sad, it makes us happy, it makes us joyous, it could enrage us some of the music it changes the psychological direction of the mind. David would play on the harp. He would focus upon the things of God playing on the harp and that would soothe the wretched Saul. But to promise such a thing was certainly a gamble. Consider their suggestion and Saul agrees. Provide me now, he says, a man that can play well and bring him to me. David is then introduced to Saul by one of his servants in verse 18. And notice how he's introduced. Then answered one of the servants and said, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, Now you would think that Saul knew this man, the Goliath slayer, the giant slayer. But notice what he says about Jesse. About the son of Jesse. This is the son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, the man from Bethlehem. And his son is cunning and playing. Notice, he begins to unpack David's character. Cunning and playing. And a mighty, valiant man and a man of war, and prudent in matters, and a comely person, and... Here's the kicker. The Lord is with him. Again, how did the servant know of David? Well, David wasn't hiding. He was so conspicuous, as was his testimony of valor, warfare, and skill as a musician, that everyone knew him. And this servant also identifies David as being prudent. In other words, he was wise... So David at this point in his life was already a mature man. Mature in his faith. Mature in his service. Mature in his cunning. Mature in his skill. And even though he was a simple shepherd, he was renowned. And herein is another practical lesson. Everyone is proven for leadership while in a lowly position. No one starts at the top you have to first eat crow. And I've said this before, the only profession where you start at the top is a ditch digger. They always start at the top. But no one starts at the top. David cut his teeth as a shepherd. Secondly, David, as a shepherd, had little hope of any upward class mobility. He wasn't saying, well, I think I'll inherit my father's kingdom because I'm the firstborn. No, I'm the eighth. I get nothing. I get the sheep. So he didn't care whether or not he had prospects. He wasn't doing this for prospects. He wasn't doing this so people could know him because no one knew him. He was doing it unto the Lord. Why are you serving Christ? Why are you going out of your way to serve God? So that people could say, oh, look at him, he's out there in the world doing all these things. No, 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 no. David had no hope of upper mobility. And yet, he develops cunning and wisdom, a man of valor and war. A skilled man of God. Even if no one ever knew, that's what he wanted to be. Before the eyes of heaven, that's what he wanted to be, even though no one knew him. Now as to the eschatological aspect, David parallels the Lord Jesus Christ as a man from Bethlehem, the one who is called the sweet psalmist, mighty in valor and warfare, a man who is wise and one who is beautiful. All of these attributes that David had can be attributed to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now once David is brought to Saul, he comes not empty-handed. He comes with gifts of bread and wine. Both symbols of the gospel. And yet, Saul is void of any redeeming grace. And yet he loves David, at least initially. And David is immediately made Saul's armor-bearer. A very significant place in the courtroom of Saul. Verse 21 is significant. Notice, and David came to Saul and stood before him, and he loved him greatly, And he became his armor bearer. David now in the royal court finds favor with the king at least for a time. And Saul develops at this point great affection for the shepherd boy which allows David comfort in the royal court making all of his administrations and and all of the, the affairs of the court available for David's observation. He was right there to observe how does it all work. So now in the court of the king Whenever Saul had a mental breakdown, David was there to refresh him with the songs of Zion and that is what he sang. The songs of Zion. The songs of hope. And it came to pass when the evil spirit from God was upon Saul that David took a harp and played with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well and the evil spirit departed from him. We will explore further the relationship between David and Saul when we continue next time in the series on first Samuel, and this we shall do, God helping us unto the praise of the glory of His grace. Amen.